Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We continue our journey towards Christmas. It's our last Sunday before Christmas Eve services. We continue to look at and focus ourselves in on the Messiah. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, and we have a prophecy here that is of a coming Messiah. And so we're discovering in this and from this series, this passage of Scripture, that the Messiah would come, we certainly know as Savior, Jesus came to pay for our sins. We know that he died on a cross, and in doing so, paid for the sins of the world. So we could be uh, saved, so we could find salvation in him. But in this passage, we're discovering as well, or being reminded of, the core uh, characteristics that the Messiah would have. And uh, certainly he is our savior, but he is also our king and our leader. And so we look to him at this time of year. And we're, uh, we've looked at uh, a couple weeks ago how he is our wonderful counselor. Um, out of this world, mind-boggling counsel and wisdom that he brings to our lives. And then we discovered that he is a mighty God. And that he has this uh, might and power, this skill and ability to lead us and to bring uh, and to... Uh, guide us where we need to go and that he's God, that the Messiah didn't come just as a human being. He wasn't just a human leader, but that he is divine. And so uh, God in the flesh, and we know Jesus came with that identity. And then this week, everlasting father. As we come uh, this season and this time of year, uh, as I've said, Christmas, this holiday named for Christ and Christians, it's a Christian holiday, yet we live in a country increasingly, it's been going on for a long time, but increasing pressure to make this holiday secular, to, uh, to keep, if you will, Jesus from being at the center of it. It's too controversial. That would leave some people out, right? So we hear the arguments and we feel that pressure in our culture. And so we find that uh, around us are individuals and a society that says, listen, if you want to make Jesus a part of Christmas, that's great, but would you please keep that to yourself at home with your family? Like, don't go ahead and put symbols that represent Jesus out in public. And so we know this has been going on a long time, the pressure to eliminate from the courthouse lawns, you know, a nativity scene, and, and these kinds of things. It continues in that direction. And so when I lived in Denver in our little house in a suburb uh, filled with maybe 150,000 people, you know, I didn't see any other nativity scenes on other people's lawns except mine. You know, and, and we can feel that way. We can begin to look around and recognize that there's this, uh, there's this pressure placed on by our culture. Um, and so they say to us, listen, um, it's great, again, for you personally to worship Jesus but, and make him part of Christmas, but at the very least, would you just keep that to yourselves? It's kind of like the two women that were having lunch at a a fancy restaurant, and they were there enjoying lunch together. A mutual friend saw them, came up and said, hey, how are you guys doing? What's the occasion? You know, you're celebrating something, I can tell. And one of the women said, well, we're celebrating the birth of my baby boy. And she looked at them and said, well, where is he? And she said, well, you didn't expect me to bring him here, did you? Okay, so so, so all I'm trying to say is um, that that, uh, in some ways it's kind of like that. Like, okay, it's Christmas, and you got Jesus in the title, and okay, we'll give you that. But could you just keep Jesus to yourself at home? And yet the truth is that we're here 
as followers of Jesus in a world and in a community that has felt that way from the very beginning. And it is our role, it's our calling in a sense, to ensure that Jesus finds his way to the center of this holiday and that people in the world around us have the opportunity through us to identify that and to see that, to be reminded of it. There are so many that think Christmas is just about Santa and presents. (laughs) And uh, we had men's prayer breakfast yesterday and that sentiment was expressed as we talked about Christmas. Many of the, the guys that were there said, you know, it's just, it's kind of frustrating, a little disheartening that Christmas has become just about the materialistic part of it and giving gifts and presents, and not that that's bad. We do that in my family and enjoy it. But at the center of things, are we making sure that Jesus is right there in the middle, that he is the one that we identify as a family and, and that our kids are able to see clearly that this is what Christmas is about. In this series, again, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9. And we're examining the great roles that Jesus the Messiah came to fill. The direction he came to give his people. Isaiah is the book that we've been in. And and the name Isaiah means the Lord saves. And Isaiah lived, as I've been telling you, in the 700s B.C., the 8th century B.C. And he had an interesting role as a leader in the nation of Israel. He had a message of judgment for the nation. And so initially, as he started off, and his prophecies and his revelations to the people were a word of, of judgment and condemnation. He said to the nation of Israel, look, a time of judgment's coming. Because of the way you've lived, you've lived in sin and you've, you've drifted from God, and you're not following him and obeying him, he's going to come and bring punishment into your life. And you're going to be taken captive. And you're going to be displaced from your home. And so certainly the nation of Israel in 722 experienced that as the Assyrian army came and conquered the northern kingdom and took captive many of their young people to serve within the Assyrian empire. And so this was their experience. And in, the, in this season of pain and frustration and pressure, a time where the world uh, was crashing in on them, and they weren't even sure, I, I'm, I'm certain, many of them weren't sure if they would survive or if they would make it. And yet in this season of difficulty and frustration, we find Isaiah also brings a message of hope. And he says, listen, there's a future time coming when there's going to be a leader that God's going to raise up and he's going to restore the nation to its rightful place and he's going to restore. And so Isaiah has this this, uh, double message that he brings. So as we look at this passage, Isaiah 9, 6, and we find these key identities, key components of the Messiah, the one that we discover today, the one we're looking at today, Isaiah tells us in this passage the Messiah is God, and therefore, the Messiah has no beginning and no end. Isaiah 9, 6, he is called our everlasting Father. First on the list of core components is his identity as being everlasting. And this word everlasting, when it's talking about God, means eternal. Isaiah chapter 40 We get this, uh, maybe a little more of a description here. Um, The prophet Isaiah writing here as well, giving a little more of a description of God that helps us understand this aspect, this everlasting component of his. And this is God speaking to the nation of Israel through Isaiah. And he says this in Isaiah 40, starting in verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up to the heavens. Who created the stars? He brings them out like an army one after another, calling each by name. 
Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. The nation of Israel, under a time of pressure, in a storm, in a season of uncertainty, and unclear as to whether or not they would survive. Maybe you find yourself in one of those seasons or situations now. You know, storms come in an instant. They overtake us in a moment. Things can be great like they were this morning, and then all of a sudden the wind is blowing so hard you can barely get in the door, right? This is the nature of life. And so we can be in a moment of peace and tranquility, everything's great, and then suddenly we're, we're thrust into a storm. And those storms bring with them a crushing pressure that can threaten to destroy us. And at times we fear for our lives, whether it is our psychological life, uh, whether it is our physical life. And this is the nature of life. And the prophet says in this, listen, you have a God, everlasting God, who you serve. He is the one that is over you. He is in that role of leading you. And he brings with him such tremendous power that though you're in a storm, it, 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 there are three responses, there are three ways in which this mighty God, this everlasting God, is going to help you and minister to you in the midst of the storm. Three ways in which he does it. One way is he may uh, allow you to soar on wings like eagles. And so you will rise up over the problem and situation and you'll soar over it as though it doesn't exist. And like an eagle flies into a storm, that weather, that wind is just simply going to give you more air with which to soar. And you're going to fly over it. The second way in which he might help you through a season of difficulty is to help you run through it. So you're going to run and not grow weary. So you'll be able to run through the situation with such speed and agility. It's, so, it's as though the situation isn't really that impactful. You don't notice it that much. You're able to run through it. But sometimes we find ourselves in a weakened state, in a, in a state of we're not going to soar over it. We're not going to run through it. But all we can do is to get up and just keep walking. And so he says you're going to walk and not faint. Three different modes or postures or ways of navigating a situation. There are times where the, the pressure and the storm does not relent. And it goes on for long periods of time, years. And, and so we find ourselves in a bit. We're not, we're not flying over it. We're not running through it. But, but we just continue to walk. But the God of the universe, our everlasting God, says, I will give you that strength. I will meet you in that storm and give you the power to navigate it. So it will not crush you and destroy you. The eternal nature of God is known to us in this way. God has no beginning and will have no end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. 
I really used to struggle, as probably everyone does, with this idea of eternity and, and what does that look like and, and a God existing for eternity. I kind of felt like I could understand uh, in the future not having an end, though everything I know and everything I'm aware of has an end in some way, but, but some things I can't tell. You know, they could go on. It could seem like they go on forever or certainly past my, my existence. So that idea I can kind of understand or conceive of a little bit, but no beginning would just cause my mind to hurt, you know, to try to think of how could something not have an origination point? Because all I know in my existence is time and space. Everything has a beginning and everything has an end. And so I struggled with that, right, as I think most people do. And I would just say, well, I just accept it. By faith, I believe it. But I can't get my head around it. And, uh, and then um, a couple years ago, my family and I went to an IMAX movie. And, you know, if you know IMAX, it's just this massive screen, like 50, I don't know, man. It's 50 feet wide, 50 feet tall or something. It's huge. And, uh, I mean, you're sitting in front of it. And you, you literally have to physically move your head to look at the top and bottom. You can't look at just see the whole screen. So it's this huge um, image. And the movie was about, uh, was um, footage that was taken by the Hubble telescope. And so it was uh, footage of space. And so uh, they gave you and took you into uh, some of the, uh, you know, things like um, galaxies and black holes and stars and all this stuff. And so you would go up, you'd be able to see them in vivid color and clarity and, and uh, in size. And it was just overwhelming. It was incredible what exists in space. And the Hubble telescopes is a powerful telescope. I think it's still maybe the most powerful, certainly one of them. But it's able to look into the depths the deep regions of space. And so we're looking at all this. It's amazing. And towards the end of the, of the film, uh, they, they begin to zoom out. And it just went out further, further, further. And took you through different things. And you're going out, out, out. And it's going further and further, further. And all of a sudden, uh, you reach the ending point. And it stops. And the narrator says, uh, this is the end of what we can see. And so it's just darkness out beyond that. But the narrator says, as far as we know, this continues forever. Now, certainly we know as Christians that God is outside of time and space, so it doesn't go forever. But I thought, well, there's, there's a good picture uh, for us in our world that something that has no beginning and no end, which is space, we can't see the beginning or end, uh, kind of a little bit of a picture of eternity. The truth is that our God is eternal, and we do struggle with it because he is outside of time and space. But I'm going to tell you that the fact and the idea that I can't quite get my head around God encourages me that he is really God. Because if I could conceive of him and understand him, which is what many people do, he would seem to be uh, really just on my level, right? And so I'm thankful in some ways that I cannot figure out the eternality of God. And I can't really understand it. I must just accept it and be thankful that we have a God who has existed forever. This is the nature of who he is, and it reflects the power and identity that he possesses. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah will come and that his nature will be paternal. See, the Messiah is one with the Father. And so in our name uh, for the Messiah here, our core key uh, component of his identity, he's called eternal and then Father. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, gives us a little bit of a scripture here. It says this, And yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We all are formed by your hand. 
in the same way that an earthly father is a part of the process of procreation, the creation of new life in, in his children, so God is the originator, the, the founder, the creator of all of our lives. He is the reason for our existence. And so that fatherly role is one that he fills for all of us. The Apostle Paul was in, uh, on a number of missionary journeys. They're recounted for us in the book of Acts. And one of them, he got to, found his way to Athens, Greece. And while he was there, he began to, he went in the public square and he began to talk and teach. And as he did that, people got interested. They heard what he was saying, talking about Jesus and, and the resurrection and things like this. And so they became uh, sort of enamored with him. And they said, hey, you need to come in front of our, um, our high council for the city of Athens and speak and present to us your ideas. We love hearing new ideas. And so the Apostle Paul went, and uh, he gives a description of God that, again, helps us understand a little bit more about this aspect of his nature. So in Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, he says this, describing God. He said, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself lives life and breath, or excuse me, he himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created the nations throughout the whole world. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of, uh, any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So again, Paul says, listen, this is the nature of the God of the universe. He is a father to us all. Our concept of father comes from our earthly fathers. And this has caused some to struggle with the idea of God as father because our earthly fathers are not perfect. There's two boys coming out of Sunday school, two first graders. <clears throat> they had heard a lesson in Sunday school, and they were talking amongst themselves, and one of them said to the other, you know, do you really believe all that stuff about the devil that we learned in Sunday school? And the other little boy said, no. He said, I think it's like Santa Claus. It's really your dad. <clears throat> but we need our fathers. <laughs> we need them. They're crucial to our understanding. Like, we need them to teach us about life. You know, there's a father and son went fishing, and the son began to contemplate things and look around, and he was thinking and trying to understand and a little curious. And so he asked his dad, he said, Dad, how does this boat float? And the father thought for a minute, and he said, You know, I don't rightly know, son. Well, the boy kept thinking, contemplating more. He turned back to his father and said, Dad, how do fish breathe under the water? And dad thought for a minute, he said, Hmm. Don't rightly know, son. Well, a little bit later, the boy asked another question. Why is the sky blue? Dad thought for a minute. He said, mm, don't rightly know, son. Well, the boy got a little nervous. He's like, man, hope I'm not irritating my dad with all these questions. So he said, dad, are you okay with me asking these questions of you? I mean, I don't want to bother you. And dad said, oh, sure, son. I mean, how are you going to learn anything if you don't ask? Hey, we want our dads to know everything. I had my kids fooled probably up until they were about, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, that I knew everything, had every answer. 
earthly fathers, we love to fill that role, you know, be the all-knowing. But we're not. We don't have all those answers. And so uh, the truth is, however, that the Messiah in that role as father has all the answers. He is that picture of the father that we think we need. Now, some dads do know a lot, right? And it can seem like they do have all the answers, but God really does. Uh, in fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves because we, he created us. Um, I used to tell my kids at times, man, nope, I know what you need. I know better than you do what you need, right? And they, of course, didn't like that. But, but God really does. He really does know us. He really understands what we need. At times we think we do and we always think we know, but he really does. The word father here uh, in this ancient text has the idea of a chief of a tribe. Or like we, we talk about Abraham being the father of the, of the Hebrew nation, right, of the Jewish people. And that's kind of the idea here of, uh, of everlasting father, that the Messiah would be that, fill that role for the entire human race. That he came to fill this role a father that we so desperately need. You know, he really is a good father. He really is the perfect father. Um, most of you know that I lost my father this year. And uh, it's been a, a significant loss in my life and something I had a good friend tell me, you know, you're never prepared for that. Um, it's always shocking and it always um, affects you more than you think. And that's certainly true um, because my dad was a good man. I mean, he was one of the best men, uh, best men that I've ever known. He was godly. He was a pastor and a missionary, and he really worked out of a sincerity. You know, he wasn't uh, somebody that at home he was one person, and at, you know, at church he was another. He he really was consistent um, in his life, and I think of him as being one of the most integrate people that I've ever known. Like it, you know. I'm sure he struggled with something, but living with him and watching him, uh, it certainly was not evident what that was. And so I'm, I, I do miss him. You know, he moved here, my mom and, and uh, he moved here with us when we moved to, to this area. And, and so he'd come to church here, obviously, and I miss greeting him every Sunday morning. You know, I'd go out and uh, as he walked in, I'd shake his hand. I'd say, good morning, pastor. And he'd say, good morning, pastor. You know, and we'd, we'd have our little moment there. And then after the service, he'd come up and he'd say, well, didn't hear any heresy today. I said, that's good, Dad. I'm glad you're watching that. Keep me on track. Um, but the truth is that as uh, wonderful as my relationship was with my dad in later years and as encouraging as it was at times, he'd say, I'm proud of you and you know, you're doing a good job and all that was very meaningful. I needed that. When I was a young boy, I was terrified of my father, uh, certainly at times. And there was moments where at home with four kids, I'm the oldest, have a younger brother, a couple years younger than me, and, um, and we're pretty rambunctious, to say it lightly, and pretty uh, aggressive, and, and I was usually the initiator of whatever was happening that was out of control, and things were breaking, and stuff was happening, the house was probably mayhem, and my poor mother would try to put, uh, bring some order to the house, and of course, you know, I could kind of ignore my mom or talk her out of things or whatever. And so um, she would get uh, fed up with me and it, to the end of the situation and she would say the words that would have an impact on me, which is, wait till your father gets home, right? Maybe you've heard that. And I was instantly struck with fear. 
Now, some people think you shouldn't be afraid of your debt. Like, that shouldn't be the way things are done. Fathers, that's too aggressive. That's too harsh. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. I can assure you that played a very important role in my life. And that my father had a board of correction that he would use. And he didn't have to use it a lot. I don't remember it happening a ton. But, you know, it was about that thick and it was painted red. Had a good handle. And he used it. Okay, and, and listen, it served an important role in my life. To be afraid of my father at times was essential for me to grow up, to mature, to have uh, some restraint, and to understand authority. And I fear, as I look at our world, that we're losing that quick. We don't have that concept that dad needs to be an authority figure and needs to be a disciplinarian. And, and, uh, and that just isn't happening, and there's a, there's a sense to which that's overbearing and it's too much uh no 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 we're we're gonna move in a direction we already are away from discipline and away from order and we need that in our world listen it's in the scriptures it's the way in which god has set things up in our world to have order and to have a a sense of restraint because we need that and the truth is that that is who god is he brings that to our lives but too often in the world again we want a god who doesn't match up with the God that, that we really have. We want, in fact, not so much a heavenly father sometimes as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all, right? That's what we want, a permissiveness, a God that just gives us what we want when we think we want it. And he's never hard on us. He never cranks on us. He never spanks us. But he just always gives us that encouragement, positive uh, energy, so that we feel good about ourselves. Listen, I'm just telling you, that's not who God is, and it's not what we need. We need correction at times. We need discipline at times. And the truth is, the Bible says that God disciplines those he loves. I think the scariest spot to be is when you're not experiencing any discipline and you're running hard in the wrong direction. That's a scary place to be because that means God has maybe taken a pause on you or said, well, I'm not going to listen. She's not going to listen, so go ahead and run in your direction. And you're going to run into a wall and you're going to run off the cliff, whatever it is. But God comes after us, man. The pursuit of us is the love to say no and stop, right? That's love. And so uh, this is the father that we have. The Messiah will watch out for us. He will provide for us. He will give us direction and nurture, but also give us correction and discipline and training so that we can find our place in the world. I uh, talk to parents sometimes struggling with an adult child that is still living in rebellion, right? Not really getting it and still bitter and angry in some ways about the childhood they had and the way in which they were treated. And sometimes it comes down to these kind of things like disciplinary stuff and, you know, correction and times that were harsh. And I just recognize that, that what needs to happen for us to grow up, that transition from childhood to adulthood, is that we need to embrace and understand this idea of authority and that we live under our parents' authority and good parents discipline. They just do. They correct, right? They do what it takes to stop their children from going the wrong way. Everything they can do. No, no bars held, right? Just, just do everything you can do to correct and to stop and to help your kids go on the right path. But uh, the transition to adulthood is moving into the place where I understand 
that my parents' authority I needed, and now I need as an adult to live under God's authority. And so it's not a getting out of authority and living under authority. It's a transition to I'm an adult and I answer for myself. I have a responsibility for myself, and that means I need to live under the authority of God. And so I, I willingly come under that and I submit to it. And that's that part we talk about uh, making your faith your own. You know, growing up in a Christian home, I, I lived under my parents' authority. But when I got to college, I had to decide what I was going to do. And I just watched this struggle. And a lot of it has to do with this father figure and relationship. And the Messiah came to bring that to us, to provide that for us, so we can live in this world and live productively and live under his authority. Messiah is every, he's everlasting father. Um, he's the good, good father that we need. He's exactly the father that we really need. And he comes and wants to come into our lives and bring that presence and nurture us and, and again, help us to live. Messiah is everlasting father. And so the eternal nature of God reminds us of what matters. The eternal nature of God. Uh, Abraham, known as the father of the Hebrew nation, uh, his story is very fascinating because Abraham was living his life, uh, living, you know, he had a family, he was fairly wealthy and prosperous, and he lived with his father and grandfather in kind of a tribal uh, environment, and this was the nature of life for him. Things were going pretty well, and then God, the God of the universe, came to him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family, and I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you. And he said, uh, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And we know it as the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant has three aspects to it. This is the covenant God made with Abraham. He said, first of all, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a land that's your own, a place to occupy and live. Secondly, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to give you seed. So I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to give you prodigy and family and, and you know, kids and grandkids and on and on. Your, your, your offspring are going to be more numerous than the sand on the seashore. I'm going to make you into a nation. Lastly, he said, I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to bless the world through you. And of course, that ultimately was the coming Messiah through the nation of Israel, through the, the family that Abraham started. And so this was the covenant that God made with Abraham. One of the first covenants in the Bible. You have a covenant with Adam, right, and then Noah, and then you've got Abraham. And it's significant. Because it was the beginning of God working with the, the people of Israel and that would ultimately lead to us being able to uh, be saved and be a part of God's family. And so this story of Abraham is interesting because Abraham had the faith and the, the wherewithal to answer, to sort of obey God. And when God said, leave your home and leave your land and go to a place I'll show you, he stepped out in tremendous faith, not knowing what that meant or where they were going. He just believed God for this promise. And so he began to uh, follow, and God led him on a journey. And along the way, at times, he would stop in different areas. He had uh, animals, and he had family, and so they would stop and rest for a while and sort of live in an area. One of those areas that he found himself in at one point was called Gerar. The king of Gerar was Abimelech. And in Genesis, we find this story of Abraham encountering Abimelech in the region of Gerar. And was, Abimelech was a Philistine king. And so Abraham, though he was a man of faith, he still was a growing man. 
And he did not have complete mature faith in God. And so what's interesting about Abraham is he's like all the rest of us. At times we show tremendous faith and we, we step out and obey God. And then other times we look like we have no faith at all. And, and we look back and we wonder, man, how can I? I'm schizophrenic in my Christian life. You know, One moment I have faith, the other moment so I don't even know God. And so this is Abraham. And so just like the rest of us, he walks into a situation that he encountered a couple times in his life where his beautiful wife, Sarah, made him fearful for his own life. He would get into a region, he did this in Egypt too, where he would say, and he said to his wife, Sarah, listen, uh, you're beautiful, and the, this king is powerful, and we need, we need to stay here, and, and what I'm fearful that he'll do is because of your beauty, he's going to kill me so that he can have you as his wife. And so i got a plan for this. We're just going to tell the king that you're my sister. And so that's how we're going to deal with this. And so Abraham, smart guy, he understood power. He understood, uh, the, you know, the, the world and how it works. And so he came up with a solution. And so in this particular case, he sent Sarah, uh, they encountered the king. And the king said, oh, great. Who are you guys? And he said, well, I'm Abraham. This is my sister, Sarah. And he said, oh, your sister. Well, have her come to the palace. I want to get to know her. And of course, his intentions were to wine and dine her a little bit and to win her over and to sleep with her. And maybe make her one of his concubines or wives. Who knows? And so this was his intention. That would have been normal uh, for a pagan king. And so uh, this is what he proceeded to do. Invited Sarah to the palace. And fortunately for him, the first night was not one of trying to um, cohabitate with her. And so he just uh, did, you know, a little bit of uh, trying to win her over. But he fortunately went to bed without doing that. Because in the night, an angel appeared to him and, and scared the pants off of him said, listen, this is uh, my guy Abraham, and this is not his sister. It's his wife, and she's sleeping in your palace. And if you don't do something, you're going to bring judgment down on your head, and I'm going to destroy you. And so uh, he was filled with fear. He wakes up, and he goes after Abraham. What are, you, what are you doing to me, man? Are you trying to get me in trouble with God? And so uh, this, this was the nature. And Abraham had to learn that he didn't need to be fearful of a situation or a person because Almighty God was overseeing his life. And so this was, this was his learning process. But as a result of this interaction, the reason I'm telling you this is because this eternal nature of God is talked about in the midst of this story. And we learn, really, the first place in Scripture, in the Old Testament, that we learn of this. In Genesis 21, Abimelech and Abraham end up making a covenant together, making peace, so that they can coexist and have a relationship. And so uh, Genesis 21, starting verse 32, says, After making their covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech left with, with Phicol, the commander of his army. And they returned home to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. And there he worshipped, listen, he worshipped the Lord, the eternal God. That title, the Lord, is Yahweh. It is the name for God in the Old Testament, a, a personal, intimate, relational God. And so that's the Lord and then the eternal God. And this is the term that we see in our passage in Isaiah, eternal father. The name here used in Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim is the, the term eternal God. And so we discover very early in the scriptures that this is the nature of God. He is eternal. The eternality of God is to give us perspective on our lives is to show us a bit of our existence. Because though, unlike God, who doesn't have a beginning, we do have a beginning. But like God, we are designed to live for all eternity. And so the Bible teaches us that that eternal nature of God, we have a bit of that. 
we're going to live forever. And so this perspective on time is something that we need to, to get a handle on. We need to grasp. And so I got a little illustration for you. Pastor Ben, would you come up? Randy, would you come up and help me? <clears throat> so I just want to give you a little bit of a picture, hopefully, that'll help you uh, get some perspective on eternity and our lives. And so uh, let's see. Grab that end. Randy, grab this one, and I think it'll just pull out. Go that direction until you stop. And, uh, okay, good. So here's a, a rope, obviously, and it represents eternity, if you will. Just pretend this goes on forever that direction. But, um, but I want to give you a little perspective on our existence here in the temporal world in which we live. And so I got a little piece of tape here with a knot, and this, this is kind of a, a, you know, an idea of what our lives look like, the time we're here on earth in comparison with our whole existence. And so we have this uh, perspective that what we have here, what we're experiencing here, is very small in relation to what we will experience with our entire existence. And again, this goes on forever. There's no end to it. Okay, thank you. Just drop the rope. We'll leave it right there. What is your perspective on time in your life? What is your perspective on this existence? Do you live as though this is all there is? Or do you have a concept that there's much, much more that you will experience with your life? As we look at time, the perspective that we have on it really matters because it affects what we do. A couple of quotes on time from different sort of famous people. Robert Moffat said, we have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset to win them. J.C. Penney said, if a man's business requires so much of his time that he cannot attend the services of his church, then that man has more business than God intended him to have. R.A. Torrey said there's more joy in Jesus in 24 hours than there is in the world in 365 days. I've tried them both. And Dale Carnegie said, remember today is the tomorrow that you worried about yesterday. Our eternity, or, or excuse me, our lives need to be lived in the reality that we will live for eternity will exist forever. There's no end to your existence. You had a beginning, it'll never end. And most of that existence is going to be outside of this life. So, the things that we do, the decisions we make, how we live, what we invest in, what we do with our time becomes so important because the, the truth is that if you'll take the time to invest in eternity, you're going to reap the rewards of that. There's a long time to reap the rewards of investments you make in a short period of time that you'll exist here. If you remember that God has called us to join him in work that will last forever, you can and will be filled with joy in this life. The truth is that God wants to lead you to a place where the things you do with your time will last far beyond time itself. In the city of Sydney, Australia, late one evening, a British naval officer years ago was walking down a well-known street Suddenly, he heard a voice from behind him which said these words. If you should be called into eternity within the next 24 hours, your soul would either be in heaven or hell. Well, those arresting words of this unknown man burned their way into his soul until he felt the need as a sinner before God, unfit for his holy presence and unprepared for eternity. Later, he sought to find the way of salvation and placed all his confidence in Christ and his work of redemption. And thus, he came into possession of eternal life. The remarkable thing is that several other people had that same experience 
on that same street in Sydney, Australia. And there was a gentleman named Francis Dixon, who was a godly minister of Lansdowne Baptist Church in Australia. He discovered these stories. He began to hear about them from individuals that experienced it. And so over time, he heard a number of these stories. And so in a, in a, a series of messages that he gave to some leaders, he began to recount these stories and tell of what had happened. And he shared with this group that along the way, he had an opportunity to visit Sydney, and he decided because he'd heard all these stories, he was going to try to find the, the man who was responsible for saying these words that God was using in such a powerful way. And so he went and hunted down this gentleman, found an older Christian man, and he shared with him the impact of the words he had said, which, of course, the man had no idea about. And, of course, when he heard of it, he was brought to tears to understand that God had used a small effort on his part to bring so many into faith in Christ. This is the nature of the world, uh, of the lives that we live. We have an opportunity to invest. And I just want to kind of remind you gently and call you gently at this Christmas season that we really need to look beyond ourselves to our everlasting Father to lead us beyond our problems and issues in this life, to rise above those or even in the midst of them, to be a voice of hope, salt, light in the world we live in, to help point others to the Messiah, to remind them that this Christmas is really about Jesus. That's what it's about. (laughs) And he came as our Savior, and he came as our Messiah. He is and will be our wonderful counselor, able to give us out of this world advice and wisdom as we navigate our lives. He's our mighty God. He comes in power and and strength, and he has skill and wisdom and the ability to help navigate us through this life. And he, he is God, the real God that we need. And he is our everlasting father. He exists forever and he will be with us forever. He wants us to spend eternity with him, and he wants to be the father that we really need. This Thursday, we have three services on Christmas Eve at 2 o'clock, at 4 o'clock, at 6 o'clock, and maybe one way in which you could help someone connect to the meaning of Christmas is to invite somebody to come with you. That might be it, but maybe it's also just to make mention of it, to encourage somebody with the reality of what the season is about. Because on Christmas Eve, we're going to discover that Jesus is also the Prince of Peace. And that the peace he came to bring is not necessarily the peace that we think of when we look at the world, but it's really the peace that we needed to experience as a human race. So, of course, I hope to see you on Thursday. But if not, hope you have a Merry Christmas. Hope you enjoy the time with your family or friends or however you spend Christmas. And my prayer is that you would have that opportunity and take that moment, whether it's Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, to read the Christmas story, to uh, once again remind and encourage everybody that you have the opportunity to be around, that this is about Jesus, and that he really did come as our Messiah. And he came to lead us from being dead in our sins to being alive in him. God, thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for um, the hope that we have in you, that you are our eternal father and you want to bring 
the things that we need into our lives. You want to parent us and, uh, and be father to us. Be that leader and guide that we so desperately need. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for coming uh, to be our Messiah and to give us hope, to give us a future, to give us um, peace. And so, Father, I just pray for each one here and each one listening online and those that are a part of this community, this church, and perhaps communities uh, in other parts of the country or world. Father, we just pray, and I pray that you'd use us to help others see you. Help us to see those opportunities and moments and step into them and to take advantage of the people that we get to be around and in relationship with. Just give us those words of encouragement, those ways of pointing people to you. And God, just use us the way you intended to be salt and light in the world around us, to point people to you so that they can find hope in you too. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, um, I'm Renee James, and I am a child of God. Uh, my first name was Baby Girl McCarthy. Um, I was adopted by um, a Danish-speaking nurse named Alma and a French immigrant, Antoine, who was a car, used car dealership owner. Um, they went to the home front with mothers to apply for adoption, um, thinking it would take six months to a year. My, They had a little boy at home adopted that was just turned one. There was thrush in the home, and because my mom was a nurse, they asked her if she would just please take a baby now, so they chose me. I was told I was adopted, but I was chosen. They named me, gave me my new name as Renee Cecile Mont. My father named me after his grandmother, Cecile. The name Renee, spelled R-E-N-E with an accent mark, means born again or reborn. My mom became a single mom and we moved to Morrow where she raised us on her own uh, with my brother and my little Danish grandma. Mom was the town nurse. Um, so we're very fortunate to be in that little town. Um, I went to Sunday school and in, at Sunday school, um, I learned about Jesus. I also saw a picture of Jesus in a pasture with little kids uh, playing around him, and um, one little girl was leaning on him, and I knew that little girl was me. And I don't know why, but I knew, and I didn't understand. But I leaned on Jesus like that little girl, and I can physically feel the lean, I still do. There is no way to put into words when I was little why I knew I belonged, I had a relationship with him and why I knew I could lean on him. I just knew. Um, and as I grew up, that feeling was still there. When I was about 12, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So from then on, I had, the, I had some settlement in my feelings, and I understood. I did not understand my relationship 
and that I was reborn until I came to Mitchell Green Church. Bill and I came to um, Mitchell Berean because of um, the sign out in front that said, you are welcome here. One Sunday, Scott asked during the sermon if anybody have a verse to please stand up and read the verse. Dean Keener stood up and read the verse that answered my whole life's question and explained to me what I felt. The verse was about, I am born again. I have been adopted again into the family of God. And also that I was chosen again. And all of a sudden, my life came together and I understood. I am a daughter of the King of Kings. And what I really need to say is that... God does not make mistakes. I have the family I was supposed to have. I have had a hardworking, strong Christian mother, a loving Danish grandmother that helped raise me, and a brother that is just super. Um, this is the way it's supposed to be. My extended family accepted us and loved us, and when we were never treated one bit different. Not having a father in the home was very difficult. I didn't have a daddy's lap to sit on or sit next to or eat dinner with or to discipline me. I had only a strong mother who had to fill those shoes. So I did not realize what not having a father was. I just knew somehow in my relationship without words that I had a, I could lean on Jesus. He was always there. I can feel it. I can still feel the little girl on me leading on my daddy. And to learn that I did have a daddy all along was huge. Thank you, Dean Keener.